Hi, my name's Dave. If you could all turn with me to Acts 18. I'm going to do the scripture reading for us this morning. Acts 18, verses 1 through 22. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Galileo was proconsul at Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Galileo showed no concern whatever. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the believers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centria because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus, where he landed at Caesarea. He went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. This is the word of the Lord. We are in week 22 now of our study through the whole book of Acts, Paul's arrival and the message of the cross arriving at Corinth, and be able to take some broad strokes now about the nature of the cross. This is, by the way, the end of Paul's second missionary journey. Next week we'll begin his third missionary journey. But each city has its own unique challenges. We'll look back at some of those, how God shows up in each city, And the shape the message comes in varies with each context. But what is consistent through all of it is the message of the cross. 
the sovereign work of God through the Holy Spirit, preparing those that are to be saved in each city, the reaction of the Jewish element of each city, inevitably conflict, all of these patterns now we see as routine. And so we're going to look at it in two sections as we look at the church of Corinth. The first is this recurring theme of both the scandal and the power of the cross. And then the second is the recurrence of both protection and persecution because of the cross. So Paul comes to Corinth now, 50 miles from Athens, these two cities that really represent two very different parts of Roman culture. Athens was the intellectual center of the Roman world, the school of philosophy there. And Corinth is the sexual center, the sensual center. And together they represent the two strongholds that captivate still today most people that enslave them and keep them from experiencing the life of God, intellectual pride and sensual lust. And in some ways our culture sits smack in between Athens and Corinth. The very issues that Paul dealt with in Athens, we deal with in this city. The very issues that we're gonna see Paul deal with and confront in Corinth, we deal with as a society. Corinth was a great city of trade, very very uh, affluent. It sat on a very narrow strip of land between the Aegean and the Adriatic Seas. In fact, there was a track that had been built on which they would slide smaller ships on greased railings across that four-mile stretch. It was also a beautiful city. It was a tourist attraction. It was in this beautiful natural setting. There were fantastic buildings, private, government, and religious, though it was a tourist attraction. It was also the center for the worship of Aphrodite, this beautiful, huge temple, portion of which you can still see today, up on the hill, behind the city. Aphrodite was the goddess of sex. And every night, a thousand priestesses would come down from that mountain and go through the town helping people in their worship of sex. Priestesses were prostitutes. So this was a city that was the center of the worship of sex. So you put all that together, Uh, This is, in many ways, a very typical American city. We have a lot that we can learn from them, and it's to this city that Paul comes. Now, in order to understand the story we're about to read, I want to take you to the first of two letters that we have in the Bible that Paul writes to this church that we're about to see birthed. We know of at least three letters because we know there was a second letter in between what we refer to as 1st and 2nd Corinthians uh, where Paul wrote to them and actually caused great anguish as he had to challenge them about things that were wrong in, in their church. He had to write a very corrective note. Sometimes you have to speak hard truth. And there were unique strongholds that continued to plague the church at Corinth for many years. Uh, just a sad note is that Corinth, while many, many people will come to faith in Corinth, as opposed to Athens. Athens, being an intellectual place, shows us the difficulty of getting people who make logic and pluralism their filter through which they judge everything. We see and are aware of very few people who come to faith in Athens when the gospel's preached there. 
We don't really see much mention of a church in Athens to around 140 A.D. And there's no mention of a real strong church until into the 6th century when the school of philosophy in Athens finally closed. So what Paul began in Athens seems meager and takes almost five centuries to birth into a full church. And that underscores the challenge of bringing the gospel to people who thrive on logic and intellectual pride and their ability to measure and pass judgment on everything as valid or invalid. Corinth, a lot of people get saved in Corinth. It becomes a big church. But they never quite break free from the spiritual strongholds that hold this city. The very things that the city struggles with are the things that Paul has to write in his letters and correct this church about. And so sadly, given its strategic location, Corinth could have been the next Antioch, the next mission-sending church. Think of how the gospel could have gone to the ends of the world just by getting people who came to that city to come to faith. To me, that's Worcester. Think about how we could transform the world just by touching the lives of students who come to the city and then go to to the world. Think about that. Corinth never became that. They never got past their spiritual infancy because of the issues that held them so strongly as it held that city. When we think of Corinth, we think of a problem church plagued by immorality and lustful passion. We'll come back and wrestle with the implications of that, but leave a bookmark or your finger in Acts chapter 18. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to refer back to this letter a couple of times to help us understand some of the things we're about to study. We're going to begin reading at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Hold some of those thoughts in mind. They're going to help us understand some of the things we're about to read. Now back back to Acts 18. Paul comes to Corinth alone, and very early on, he gets associated with a married couple by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. They are among those who left Rome because the emperor kicked all the Jews out. Paul hooks up with them. He also was a tent maker, and so they set up shop and begin making tents together. This is where we get that phrase, tent making that there are times when those in ministry are bivocational. We work, put meat and bread on the table, care for the family, and then we work in ministry. That's what we refer to as tent making. This is actually a brief season. Silas and Timothy, it goes on and says, when they came, he devoted himself full-time to the teaching. So one of the common things in this group of people that traveled with Paul was that some would be those who worked, and that freed Paul up to devote himself when he was able to full-time 
preach the gospel. So we actually see a very brief window of tent making here. Uh, and the most important part of it is the relationship that is built with uh, Aquila and Priscilla. Traditionally, we presume that Aquila and Priscilla were the first converts to Christ in Corinth. He continues regularly to go to the synagogue. And then we see uh, some trouble that happens, right? They become abusive to Paul. And uh, we see Paul actually pronounce judgment on them. I'm doing away with you. I'm shaking the dust of your house off my garments and I'm leaving. Your blood is on your own heads. You've heard the gospel. We don't know exactly how abusive it was. And we don't suggest that this is Paul's typical response because it isn't. But somehow, the Jewish reaction was so strong that Paul seemed to feel it merited a very strong symbolic statement. And this is, there's there's a bit of humor here. He moves right next door. In fact, the Greek language suggests that, that the home he moves into actually shares a wall with the synagogue. Being there in that home, Crispus comes to faith in Christ. Crispus is the head of the synagogue. And then verse 8 says, many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. So we see this season of great productivity for the kingdom. Let's just explore this a little bit in terms of the scandal and the power of the cross. Because consistently you see the Jewish people getting really worked up. At the beginning when Paul's teaching about Jesus as the Messiah, there wasn't really a whole lot of, of, of anger. In fact, there were those that would consider it. When people became offended was when Paul began to speak about the crucifixion of Jesus. This is a slap in the face to the Jewish people who pictured their Messiah coming to validate their righteousness as a people, not to save them from their unrighteousness. This is a great offense to them. But secondly, the Old Testament says, cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. And so when Paul began to talk about the crucifixion of Jesus, this was a great offense to them. And so they responded as though this was heresy. And now we go back to 1 Corinthians. What does Paul say? The cross is to the Jew an offense and a stumbling block. But not only is there a scandal to the cross, it is the very power of God to salvation. So the answer is never to soften the message. The answer is to stay true to the message in spite of the scandal because it's the only thing that can change lives. It's the only thing that can transform not only lives but societies, not only societies but the whole human race, and not only the whole human race but the heavens and the earth. The cross is the only message of recreation. So in spite of the scandal, Paul's faithful, and we see the power of the message of the cross. Now we come to the second aspect, the protection and persecution because of the cross. And that's in verse 9. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent for I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. It's an interesting little statement. And actually this is the heart of the story. Jesus speaks to Paul. We don't take this lightly. It tells us some of the things that Paul is wrestling with, and it also helps us understand not only how Paul was to respond to it, but how we should respond to it. So let's take a few minutes and look at what God actually said to Paul and why. When he says, fear not, 
The literal Greek there is this. Stop being afraid. Paul right now is afraid. Why is he afraid? He's been doing this long enough, hasn't he? Doesn't he know how it turns out? Well, exactly, yeah. And that's why he's afraid. Look at what he says in his first letter to Corinth, chapter 2, verse 3. Say this with me. I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. So Jesus is speaking to a real thing that's happening in Paul. Why is he fearful? Well, he knows the pattern. He recognizes the same thing is happening here that happens in every city. From a distance of 2,000 years, stonings and imprisonment and, and lashes to the point of death, well, that's just all symbolic stuff for us. We cover our crosses in gold and hang them from our necks as a piece of jewelry. Paul knows what's developing. He knows that there will be those who will be saved. He knows there will be those who will get angry. He knows there will be a point where the whole city starts to be divided by the cross. And he knows in all likelihood he is going to suffer. And you know what? That shouldn't diminish our respect for Paul one iota. Who wants to face that again? Paul is a human like you and me. We forget this sometimes when we read it. He is not divine. He's a man. And faith is not a perfect thing any more than people are perfect. Faith and fear are not mutually exclusive. If I didn't fear the future, I wouldn't need faith. We, we see his humanness, and we can relate to that. And in fact, when we bring Paul down to being just like you and me, what that means is that we can't get away with anything. You can't look at yourself and say, well, I can be less than Paul. I can be less faithful. I can keep my mouth shut. I can not take up my cross like Paul did because Paul was the great man of faith. I've got my fears. <laughs> oh, no, can't get away with it when you see that Paul struggled with the same thing. And the same way Jesus speaks to him, he speaks to us today. First thing he says is, stop being afraid. And the second thing he says is, keep speaking the cross. He says, do not become silent. Don't go dark because you're afraid of the repercussions, because you fear the response of men. We know now when the cross is preached, there will be those who will embrace it and those who will reject it. Deal with it, but don't go dark. Keep speaking the cross. Keep speaking the cross. And then he goes on, he says, not only that, remember, I'm with you in it. And then he makes this interesting promise, no one is going to harm you. Now, were we just to come to this text like so many people do, without seeing it in the storyline, we could stand up and say, God promises you will not be harmed when you bring the gospel. But hey, we're in the book of Acts. So we know that can't be what he's saying. Because the same person has been stoned, has been beaten. He's faced death. So this is not some general promise that no weapon formed against you shall prosper. You're not invincible. People die for preaching the cross every day. 
This moment someone is dying for preaching the cross. Why here is Christ promising to Paul, no harm is going to come to you? Well, there's a very important word that comes after this. It says, no harm is going to come to you. What's that word? Because there's a reason why Jesus promises him, I'm going to protect you right now. And that's the final phrase. I have many people in this city. I picture a football game. The quarterback drops into the pocket, right? The line creates this pocket out of which he can keep throwing the ball. Jesus is saying to him, I'm going I'm to protect you so you can keep putting the gospel out. And here's why. There are people in this city that I have prepared for the gospel. There is going to be a greater harvest. I was here before you were, Paul. I've been preparing the hearts of men and women. The fields are white to harvest in Corinth. And I'm not done using you here. And so until those in whose lives I've been working and preparing for the gospel, until they come, you're good, Paul. You're good until then. This is a very interesting principle that we live with as Christians. Not so much in a society like this where we have yet to face true persecution. We still live in a country where we're free to worship. This is a public school, after all, that we're meeting in. Think about that. Here's the reality. For me to live is Christ, and to die is even better. That was Paul's words to the church of Philippi. What God is saying to Paul is, right now, there's work for you to do. Be bold, be courageous, keep speaking the gospel. But we know Paul eventually is beheaded for that very same message. You understand what I'm saying? It's not that the protection is what we seek, but there is that confidence that we should have as God's children. As long as God has work for me to do, I'm good. As long as God has work for me to do, I'm good. And when he's done, I'll be better. Because to live is Christ. To die, that's even better. That's gain. It's a powerful principle. If we could bottle that and serve that for communion today, and you could embody that, we would change Worcester. Instead, we're paralyzed by our fear, our fear of being mocked, being ridiculed. We live in fear, and we go dark. It's the same message to us that it was to Paul. Are you here? Then I've got work for you in the city. I've got people in whose lives I'm working. There is a harvest out there. Are you still breathing? Are you still breathing? Keep speaking the cross. That's what we're here for. That's what Paul was there for. I didn't plan to get into that quite as strong as I did. I think God planned it, so there you go. And so what's Paul's response? Verse 11. So Paul stayed a year and a half, and many, many, many people came to Christ as he was faithful to the word. And then, year and a half in, finally the threats, the fears, the predictions based on his past experience of potential harm 
come to fruition, and we pick that story up at verse 12. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, Achaia, by the way, is formerly Greece, now the province of Achaia in the Roman Empire. Corinth was the capital of Achaia, and Gallio was the proconsul. He's actually noted throughout history as being a man of great fairness and wisdom and great insight. And the Jews mount this assault now. They've been building it. And what they say is that they are breaking the law of Rome by what they're preaching. Now, the law that they're speaking about is a prohibition that Rome had put out at this time against any new religion. Let's read. Just as Paul was about to speak against this, Gallio said to the Jews, if you Jews are making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourself. In his wisdom, Gallio recognizes that, in fact, Jesus, the Christ, is not a new religion. It's the fulfillment of Judaism. And so Paul doesn't even have to defend himself. Gallio steps in and defends for him. More of a fulfillment of Jesus' promise to Paul. Until I'm done, you're good, Paul. I'll fight for you. I'm with you. So what do they do? The Jews actually turn on their own leader. It tells you how strong their anger is over these many months. And now they they put all their hope in this idea that Sosthenes had come up with, and he gets shot down. So right there outside of the proconsul, the Jews turn on Sosthenes and beat him up. That's pretty strong. Now, this is interesting. This evidently proved to be a very good thing for Sosthenes. Let me explain why. In the very first verse of Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, he begins with these words. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the authority of God, and your brother, Sosthenes. This perhaps was the breaking point. Sosthenes, who was the embodiment of those that were the enemies of the cross, now becomes a brother under the cross. He moves from persecutor to partner in the gospel. What a great turnaround. Paul, the former persecutor of Christians, Saul, who becomes Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, himself now becomes the vehicle of Sosthenes, the opposer of Christians in Corinth, becoming a brother under Jesus Christ. You see, Those very people that may be opposing us, causing pain, doing harm to us, we can never villainize. It's no longer an eye for an eye in terms of the kingdom of God. It's turn the other cheek because we never know who is the one that God's hand is on and who will become a true partner in the gospel and in the body of Christ. I wanna show you a video of a pretty well-known guy by the name of Penn Gillette from the magic duo Penn and Teller. Penn Gillette is an outspoken atheist. He's a proselytizing atheist devoted to debunking belief in matters of faith. I want you to watch him tell of an experience he had with a Christian. 
want to talk to you about this. Uh, I get home from the show, and at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we uh, we talk to folks and you know sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the um, what I call the hover position after I was all done. Big guy, probably about my age. Big guy. And um, he had been the um, the guy who has uh, picks the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. Uh, so we had the props from that in his hand because we can give those away. And he walked over to me and he said... Um, I was here last night at the show, and uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted. And he was very complimentary about my use of language and um, honesty and stuff. And then he said, "I brought this for you," and he handed me a uh, Gideon Pocket Edition. I thought I said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? A little book about this big. This thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive, and he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. But this guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible, which had written in it a little note to me, uh, not very personal, but just, you know, like your show and so on, and then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Now, I know there's no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. Uh, but I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man. And uh, that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, uh, it's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man, that was a good man who gave me that book. That's all I wanted to say. 
A lot there to unpack, huh? Be happy to provide the link for you. I want to thank Lou Soiles for putting me on to that video. How much do you have to hate somebody to know that they can spend eternity in heaven and not tell them the way? Wow. I want to point out that uh, he has a faith system. It's as much a leap of faith to say, I know there is no God, as it is to say, I know there is. And we all live on the same little blue ball on an old star in a remote part of a remote galaxy of the billions of galaxies that exist, and it's rather arrogant for anyone to stand up and cry, I know there's no God. We all express faith to decide what we decide about God and about Jesus. How awesome, wouldn't it be, what an evangelist for the kingdom, a modern Sosthenes, someone like that. See, I, I think there's so much we could look at in relation to that. My point is, everybody's redeemable. Our call is to never go dark, to constantly bring the gospel. If you're breathing, you're good. If you're here, if you're alive, God's saying to you, you're good. Don't shut up. And for some of us, that may mean starting to open up because we've never shared about the cross. How much do you have to hate people around you not to do that? Just let that sink in. Just let that sink in. Let's look just quickly at how some of these things affect who we are here in our city because we are somewhere between Athens and Corinth. We are a city of education. We're a city of intellectualism of technology and science and medicine. We, we have to deal with the intellectual pride that comes from great intensity and devotion to education. As, as much of a gift that is, you know, there's also traps there. Those of you that are in it understand those traps, the difficulties of it. But we're also Corinth. <laughs> we are Corinth. Our society worships sex. This is the society we live in. So let me first speak to us as a church the way Paul had to speak to the church at Corinth who never could quite shake free from those strongholds. The church at Corinth was a very sensual church. They had sexual immorality that was accepted and tolerated as normal. They got drunk during communion. City of sensuality. Paul's constantly dealing with different issues. That same set of traps affects the Christian church today. And I'm going to say this without fear, knowing that it could be offensive. As a church, maybe you as a Christian may name the name of Jesus Christ, but worship at the temple of Aphrodite. Odds are, in a room this size, there are numerous people that are currently involved in an immoral affair, adulterous affair, being unfaithful to their spouse. I know that one out of three males here are addicted to pornography, because that's statistics. Young, single, and older single Christians. Many of you are having a sexual relationship apart from marriage. Some of you have convinced each other that the Bible says that's okay. It's very clear in Scripture. 
that sex is for marriage. You just want to tell each other that's not true and accept that you can live and worship at the altar of Aphrodite and name Jesus Christ. It's wrong. It's becoming increasingly acceptable. I'm telling you, it is diminishing the kingdom and your ability to give glory to God. That's just one area. But if ever there was a Sunday for me to talk about that, it's when we talk about Corinth. Because as it's often said, First and Second Corinthians could be called First and Second Americans. If there's a God who calls us to live holy, then that's who we need to be for the sake of the cross. So let me just let that sit in love. But let me also talk about God's promises to us as we relate to a culture like this. What does he promise? His call is to speak the cross without fear. And he promises in it he'll be with us and protect us. And there are always many to receive Christ. Let's just close by saying Romans chapter 1 together. Romans 1.18. Together with me. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile alike. Live to honor the cross. Speak to proclaim the cross. If you don't, then you don't believe the cross. It's really that simple. If you're a believer, then you want others to believe. Let's be people fully devoted to the cross by how we live and by what we speak. That's the hope of this city, people. We talk about it. It ends up being you and me. Ends up being us. We're about to celebrate communion. Let's remember why he died. Would you bow and just let yourself do business with God, confess sin, make a commitment to make things right, and then I'll pray and invite you to come and and feast at the table of grace. Strong words today, Father, from your word. They cut deep. But that's when your word does its best work, when it cuts deep into our lives, dividing even soul and spirit, when you do spiritual surgery. So we don't just leave here more informed about Christ, but we leave here more like Christ. And so as we come to your table, Father, even as we've become more aware of our, of our sin, help us to leave it behind because of what Christ has made possible. Help us to embrace the joy that comes from knowing we are forgiven in you. In Jesus' name, amen.